0: You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Culture Determined. I'm your hostarian Cohen Wade, and my guest today is Sophie Hegney. Uh, Sophie, could you please introduce yourself?
1: Hi, um, I'm Sophie Hegney. I am a journalist and critic. Um, I am from Boston, and I live in. Recently moved to Brooklyn, New York. <laughs>
0: Uh, so thanks for coming on. Um, I've enjoyed your writing, uh, for a while, so I'm happy to have you on. Um, and so you've, someone, what someone recently, I can't remember who, and I don't want to get it wrong. Someone recently, like, named your sort of style or your genre on Twitter, something like Small Moments of Delight or something along those lines. So oh, I think
1: it was Barbara, Barbara McClay. <laughs> Okay, yeah. That's who
0: I thought it was also, but I wasn't yeah. sure. Um, and so some of your pieces fit into that. Maybe, you know, some of them less so, but yeah, you've, you, you've carved out some sort of niche of writing a, 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 like closely observed essays about small things or, or moments or uh, so forth. And so the, the links to all these things will be uh, will be on the blog end site. Um, and so why don't we start with a piece that you just published uh, recently in Docker, how to properly execute the Irish goodbye. Uh, mm-hmm. What, how, when, what inspired this piece?
1: Well, it was inspired by watching a lot of people not properly execute Irish goodbyes. Um, I just noticed this thing this summer, and I think maybe there's maybe some, like, post lockdown hangover element i don't really know what it is but people are having a weird time saying goodbye to each other and i had this party um when i just moved into my new apartment and i didn't have any furniture um and i it was fun and then this person was leaving and they were just walking around the party being like kind of quietly telling people they were leaving and saying like i'm gonna make an irish exit and i was like that isn't really an Irish exit <laughs> because you're telling everybody. Um, and then I was talking to a few friends about it and we were sort of comparing notes on this idea that people are like saying that they're going to do an Irish exit, but can't, have so much anxiety, like wrapped up in the whole idea of saying goodbye that they end up overly saying goodbye and undoing the whole, the whole idea behind an Irish exit, which is just like, you know, walking out silently into the night saying you're going to return not returning the kind of quintessential uh, lack of farewell.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and so do you? I mean, is it pandemic related that people are having trouble saying goodbye because we think maybe some new apocalypse is going to come and we're not going to see each other again for a long time or possibly ever? Um, what is? I mean, theory? I think
1: that that's always the anxiety with goodbyes, which is kind of my my point in this piece. Like, I think people have a hard time saying goodbye because there's some subconscious or like liminal anxiety that you're not, not maybe not that you're not going to see someone again, but about when you're going to see them again. And how do we sort of properly memorialize this not very important moment of just like taking your leave uh, in a like random social situation. I I don't know that it's, So I think maybe our social graces, like at least mine felt like they needed a little like dusting off this summer. So maybe that's why I was noticing it more, but I think that we always are just having a hard time with the kind of, how do we, how do we take our leave from someone, especially maybe also someone you don't know that well, that you may not naturally see again, that somebody, you know, casually, that's when I think maybe goodbyes are the weirdest, like with your best friend, you you know there's more assurance that you're going to see them again, but I think with somebody who's more of an acquaintance, there's really some some deep anxiety associated
0: with the moment of goodbye um, that I think manifests in a lot of weird ways. Mm-hmm. I was thinking also about your piece, made me think about you know when when to leave a social gathering is <laughs> always sort of fraught, <laughs> and, <is not. laughs> you know at least maybe this is just playing to my anxieties, but you don't want to you don't want to leave early, then you're like. Oh, this guy can't, you know, he's a loser. He can't, uh, yeah. you know, stay out all night and and keep it going. He needs to go tuck himself into bed, that kind of thing. You don't mm-hmm. want to be the last person there because then you're like, oh, this person's a loser. They have no- nothing else to do with their life. They're yeah. just hanging around and, um, you know, they're pathetic. And, and then yeah. so, but then you also, you feel bad if you're, you know, this sort of <laughs> someone else has been the sacrificial lamb. Getting people going and then you just go out with the middle, then it's like, well, you're just like everyone else and, um, and, nah. you, and you feel kind of bad for the first person <laughs> to the party if they didn't want it to end so quickly and everyone gets out of there. So I, I mean- yeah, I don't know if. It, 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 uh does this work
1: does this, have, uh, this is i i am always i feel like I'm always overstay like I'm always like late to leave mm-hmm. um but I also as a host, I like when there are people who are late to leave like you don't want your own party to end, although some people do. at some point you do it's bad if people won't leave at all yeah. um but i yeah I think the question of when to leave is very fraught another thing i've I've been thinking about this summer like do you? You also want to leave like before things get not fun anymore. Like at a certain point, you can't sustain a hanging out. For you, just it's hard to pick the right moment to leave.
0: Yeah, I maybe there is no good time, and then, and then at least with the, if, with a properly executed Irish exit, you at least don't have the like immediate social anxiety of um you know saying your goodbyes and announcing your thing. And so you, someone, did this happen to you, or someone told you that. At a party, someone said, "Well, I'm making an Irish exit. Bye." Uh, which is, yeah, you know, that's- this is a, a mutual friend of a,
1: well, a friend. Somebody I know a little bit apparently does it at a lot of, like, at the end of a party. She just sort of says, "I'm making an Irish exit," loudly, and then just <laughs> walks out. Which I sort of admire in how anti-Irish exit it is. Um, But I think I think that comes, and and what also happened to me at my party, kind of comes from the place of not wanting to actually like go around and say your goodbyes but also still kind of wanting to do that so you're like trying to pretend that you're not saying your goodbyes while also saying your goodbyes because I do think in a large social gathering like goodbyes drag the momentum down like you might drag people along with you if you leave like sometimes you see when one person leaves a party like people start to be like oh is the party ending so I think a a properly executed Irish exit stop like doesn't let that happen it sort of it's just an individual walking out into the night, not affecting the overall vibe.
0: Right. And, you know, as my, and personally, I do not like sort of being like the center of attention. So I would never say, I'm making an Irish goodbye, everyone. Or even just, I probably wouldn't even say goodbye, everyone. You know, I don't, I don't want everyone looking at me <laughs> yeah. once, that kind of thing. Um, but you, okay. So there's two other t- things you mentioned in the article that I wanted to bring up. What is your okay. parents' style of, party throwing, which oh, is yeah. unusual. And also the thing you end with, well, why don't we talk about how your parents would.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So my parents were now divorced, but when I was younger, um, they used to, they were, they like, were very social parents. Um, there was always, they were like having people over to our house. Um, but both of them, and I think especially my dad are like pretty early to bed kind of people Um, And so there was sometimes this conflict, like where the guests would like want to stay later. And I think they didn't, for whatever reason, I think they just didn't like to end the party. And so they did kind of an in-home Irish exit strategy where one of them would say like, I'm going to go get a sweater and then would just go to bed. And then that would be kind of a code, and eventually, like, the other would kind of, like, go to bed, and their party guests would just kind of stay until they realized that their hosts were gone or the night had just ended, and then they would depart, which is has always struck me as very elegant strategy, though not one I would personally employ.
0: Yeah, that would, I mean, that would give me maybe even more anxiety than any of the other (laughs) ones we discussed. It's just like, oh, there's a bunch of people in my house and I'm not keeping an eye on things, you know, that, that would, uh, yeah,
1: no, that's, I mean, these were adults. So it was, I think there was less concern, although like there was a, there was once a broken couch that I remember, <laughs> but no, in general, I think, I think it was, um, close, like small gatherings of close friends, but I do, I do remember one time they had a house guest who was like really irritated because she had been kind of left behind as the de facto host for their like late staying party uh-huh. right, guests. And so she went and actually got them back out of bed to like get rid of the guests, which I also thought was a bold, a bold move.
0: Uh, Yeah, that, yeah, that, yeah, that I, I would agree. That is a bold move. And so you, you end with me mentioning someone who left the party by saying something like, here, hold my beer. I'll be back, and then yeah. they were gone. So that that, but that to me is almost beyond the Irish exit, uh, because you're, you know, yeah. they're saying they're coming back, and hold my beer is like a cl- you know classic. I'll be back in five minutes, kind of thing. Yeah, um, yeah. So, so pulling that almost because if someone did that, if someone said to me, hold my beer, they never came back, I would go looking for them. <laughs> <So> <laughs> point-
1: yeah. No, I mean I, that's like taking it to a slight extreme because I did actually expect that he was going to come back. And I was surprised that he didn't come back, but it was, it was like the most, one of the more extreme Irish exits that I'd ever seen. Um,
0: right. Yeah, that's a bridge too far for me. I would, I would say that's a semi-social faux pas, but, um, you yeah, know, yeah. I'm not Emily Post. Um, and, and you, so the origins of the phrase are mm-hmm. disputed, but other countries have their own version of, yeah. like the so call it a Dutch goodbye or something like that.
1: Yeah, like, well, actually, the English or the French call it like the English goodbye and the English also, the English, I think, tend to either call it the French leave or the Irish goodbye. But then it's like, there's also like the Swedish exit and the Dutch goodbye. So basically, like all countries like to blame it on whatever their sort of like (laughs) ethno-cultural stereotypes about another country are. And I think in, in America and I think in England, the Irish exit has been the most prominent Form because because we like to we like to joke about the Irish.
0: Yeah, that could be, and you know that it's possible that it's a stereotype about drunk Irish people staggering off. Um, so I guess that'd be an offensive stereotype or a sort of um, tragic stereotype about people fleeing during the potato famine and, you know, going go to a different country and you would never see them again. Um,
1: yeah. I mean, I thought that was really interesting. I don't know. I don't know how credible that theory is like, but I think it's, I mean, it doesn't seem like there's a great um, well-documented origin of either term, but I was very struck by the idea of the potato famine as the origin, the potential origin for the Irish exit, because this idea of a departure that's like very sudden and absolute, a departure where you leave behind your family and your relations and your friends, and you just never return and you never communicate with them again. Like that is, that was the defining feature for this, that generation of emigration and also many other, many other uh, generations of it. And I think, I don't know, I think it just, it's very striking. And then to think about doing that in miniature um, in your life, like different ways that you depart from people very suddenly and absolutely. Um, I don't know. I think there's some connection there that that struck me when I was thinking about that as a potential origin story.
0: Um, yeah. And, and the, the part about how each country has its own term for it, or at least some countries do, remind me that there's some like venereal disease that in the 19th century, like the, the English called it like the French disorder and the French called it the English disorder or something. It was always like, yeah, you know, those other, those dirty foreigners are the ones who <laughs> get, you know, chlamydia or, what, or whatever it is. Um And yeah. Um Okay. Well, we're not going to end this podcast right now. I guess, I guess the podcast version of an Irish goodbye would just be hitting end right now. And, and that would be, yeah, <laughs> But we're not going to do that. Um, so let's talk about another piece you wrote. Uh, let's talk about the um, the Picasso piece, which ran in the Times Magazine uh, a couple months ago. And the strange joy of watching the police drop a Picasso is the um, is the title online, and the link will be below. And so I think I did see this when it first happened. But can you describe what, what the core of the event, yes. and also <laughs> why? Core. What? what the, why is? How did this like inspire you to? Well, okay. so it.
1: yeah, basically I saw this video, no context on Twitter of the, of the Greek police holding, uh, or actually trying to like position a, a Picasso canvas up against a ledge. And you just watch the painting fall in this kind of amazing moment. It's like really stunning to just watch a Picasso canvas fall. And what had happened is this painting had been stolen, um, I think it was like a decade before, and recovered in a gorge, along with also a Mondria and another drawing. And these were, the the police were then sort of setting up their like victory lap. And in doing so, this art handling the other thing was like they were handling it with like no gloves. It was very, it was all very like rough, Um and you just kind of see this like really taboo moment, like you're, I feel like we're just taught like our whole lives, like you can't, can't touch the painting, can't, uh, break the, you know, handle with care, just like be really cautious about art, especially art that is worth millions and millions of dollars. um and then you just see it all kind of like fall apart in this minute, but then the amazing part is that they just pick it up and it's totally fine. <laughs> And like, it's just fine. You can just drop a Picasso on the ground and the world doesn't end. And I think just like seeing that from start to finish in a video form was very like revelatory to me in some way and made me think a lot about how we think about different categories of objects and how we can handle them and what's appropriate. And then also just like reminding me that it is okay to not like be
0: so precious with art. And mm-hmm. yes, we art um right so okay so yeah the, they ha- the things have been stolen in 2012 looking at the piece now mm-hmm. national Ga- gallery in athens and it turned out that this guy had stolen them mainly because not for to sell them on the black market but just because he liked them he and, really was obsessed with them <laughs> and uh, yeah and then so, and then they were in his house for some period of time but then they were in a gorge So when they were in a gorge, were they like wrapped up or something? They were wrapped up in
1: like plastic, like bad
0: plastic.
1: Um, Yeah, I think basically he realized that the police were on to him somehow. Maybe they'd come and interviewed him and then he moved them first to a warehouse and then to a gorge. Um... And that was where they were recovered. But so they were recovered, obviously, in, like, not well-cared-for state to begin with. Though, like, the Greek culture minister and other people noted that they were actually in pretty good condition. Like, I think this guy really was just looking at them in his attic.
0: Yeah, so this guy, I mean, I I feel like this is a trope that appears in, you know, fiction and movies and stuff of someone steals the painting just to look at it. I I can't immediately place where it is, but, like, I feel like there's different versions where um well i guess there's that uh that um the don of tart novel of Goldfish yeah. is maybe somewhat somewhere but like yeah the person who steals the masterpiece not to sell it but to just privately just, enjoy I... it is sort of an interesting trope in that it sometimes does really happen um so so the guy himself is sort of a um You know, he's he's a connoisseur or or something. If if like a deranged one, um, such that he you know wanted these for himself because yeah, usually in this capitalist world, like you steal something valuable to sell it. Um, so it's it is sort of a weird.
1: It's very compelling. I mean, he's also a builder. He and he had this account. I think it was a Twitter, or I maybe mean, it was, I think it was Twitter or not Instagram, that was like that his handle was like Art Freak, like three, two something. <laughs> he has this very and again, this is all coming from his confession. It's totally possible that they're gonna like uncover that he had links to organized crime. But I think wow. his account of how he did it matched up with what was at the time like really, really poor security at the National Gallery in Athens because it was like austerity. Basically, it like it generally matches matches up and I think they don't have a reason to
0: disbelieve his story at this point oh so the the, 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 uh, the Euro crisis plays into this in some way because yes, they the cut, Euro the, crisis they cut the staff of the, of the security staff of the National Gallery uh, mm-hmm. that's that's funny um, yeah. okay, and then, okay so then yeah and then that's like art as object and I guess most you know for things considered high art usually uh, you know normal people like you and me can only see it like, in a gallery or a museum, and then there's a security mm-hmm. guard there, and if you try to touch it, they will ask you to leave. Um, as you described, what <laughs> happened to you when you were a small child? Um, yeah. And, yeah, I don't, yeah, how does, I don't know, it, it is, like, I'm, you know, it's not original to say that art is different than film or literature, or, or different other, you know, p- paintings and sculptures are different than um, books of literature because of yeah. their non reproducibility if that's a word and then i'm thinking of like the uh uh you know uh, the uh, walter benjamin essay and and so forth um mm-hmm. and like nfts and other things that uh, <laughs> people are trying to make you know turn things or reverse the fact that the internet makes it possible to like duplicate anything infinitely um yeah so i don't know I, it, it, but it's it i like the piece and um did, so no one yeah it, the I guess part of it is that no one seemed all that upset. You know, it wasn't like the crowd rushing forward, uh, you know, uh, screaming uh, and... <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I mean, I think so. I guess, it, I, I don't know, a few things. I mean, I, I think, like, there's a reason that we shouldn't go around, like, dropping Picassos on the floor and, like, touching. I count being escorted out of MoMA when I was a child for trying to touch an Ellsworth Kelly. Like, we shouldn't be like... Everyone should just touch art all the time, but I do think, like, the way that we encounter art is like hyper hyper has a sanitized feel like we can't really like exist comfortably next to it often there's like some security element if we own it I I don't like own valuable art but if I did like I would feel really worried about it it would like it would be really hard for me probably to like enjoy owning a Picasso (laughs) in a certain way because it just would be the source of stress about its condition. And like, again, it's these yeah. fragile objects. And if you want them to last, you have to take some amount of care of them. But yeah. I think it limits our ability to like, enjoy them that we're so focused on their condition. And, and that's so connected, I think often to their financial worth too. Um, I mean, that is what makes, I think that's what creates a lot of this anxiety in addition to, you know, wanting to like preserve cultural heritage. Mm-hmm. Um, I think another category, a category of thing that I think is like sports memorabilia, I think is something that can be really valuable, but that we like live, people seem to live somewhat more comfortably around. Um, I don't know. I don't know if that's true, but like people have like assigned baseball <laughs> and they yeah. don't seem like to freak it. You don't, you don't like put that in a temperature controlled storage unit. So I think there are kind of these these original and rare pieces that you can point to people having easier relationships with
0: right, and so actually it's funny because I have had a childhood collection of signed baseballs that um, were sitting in a box in my basement for a number of years and not in climate each one was in a little plastic case, but it was not climate controlled and um, and it probably uh, contributed to them yellowing and so forth. I mean, the, yeah. I guess maybe the difference is that those things are not unique objects, even if they're, they're rare, like the Babe Ruth has, I'm sure there's thousands of signed Babe Ruth balls out there that bear two yeah. balls, and they're still super valuable, but, you know, this Picasso painting there's only one, and even, like, a Warhol, you know, each one is <laughs> yeah, that did multiple versions of, each one is slightly different, so there is the sense of like, if this, um, One had like you know landed in a uh, in the mud or something or fell in a lake. Then then maybe people or maybe you you would feel different about it. I I was just thinking you know if you like if your parents had had a Picasso on the wall, maybe they wouldn't have just gone to bed and left the revelers at the party Uh because they'd be like, well, someone (laughs) might grab the Picasso, do an Irish goodbye from our lives, and and we're at ten million. Um, That is
1: true. Do you know the story about Steve Wynn the casino magnate and the
0: picasso did he poke it or fall into it or something
1: he like drunkenly elbowed it while like trying to like display it to a friend and his elbow just went
0: through it uh-huh.
1: and i kind of think it's this like perfect story because of a, of
0: a rich asshole who tr- everything rich around asshole, like, shit. Like,
1: destroying this valuable thing but i also am kind of like yeah, I don't know if you just like live like just I think there's something really transgressive about the idea of like puncturing the Picasso or like dropping the Picasso. That's sort of weirdly appealing. Like there's also this Dennis Johnson story where somebody burns this really valuable canvas. Like I think these kind of these acts of like piercing the aura or something are just really appealing because we're so used to art having this like untouchable status and so even though I'm like this the main story the main thing that I like about the Steve Wynn story is it's like haha like you were just showing it off to your friend and then you broke your Picasso but I also kind of just like the image of a Picasso being punctured in some kind of perverse
0: way and yeah so so so, Steve Wynn, did I say Steve Wynn? Wood, that's a different person. Steve Wynn, uh, yeah, casino magnate. And he was also a big, um, GOP donor and Trump friend and was accused of various sexual crimes and so forth. So, maybe someone who didn't, um, think a lot about other things or objects <laughs> or people or whatever, um, around him, just thinking about himself. Um, yeah. So, but I assume he, it is funny that if he spent like $50 million on this, Picasso and then is just sort of drunkenly staggering around it. And, um, and I think he's also
1: it. like, if I remember, there's a, there's a good New Yorker piece on it. Um, I think by Nick Palmgarten. I think he'd also been like about to sell it to his friend and they were like close to closing the deal mm-hmm. and he was like drunk because he was celebrating it. And then, uh... he, and that was when he did the fatal injury. <laughs> But then it got fixed. I mean, you can also fix art was the other thing that is, that I think is like worth. And it it lost, it lost, you know, some millions of dollars of value. But I think that's the other thing that is nice to remember is that like, if, even if this Picasso, the Greek police Picasso, like fell on the ground and sustained some amount of fissures in the pigments, which happens, um, there are ways that you can like, correct that to some degree and it'll never be the same but it's never the same anyway because of the endless march of time
0: yes it's okay so that yeah i just tracked that piece the 40 million dollar elbow by nick poundgarden back in 2006 and then it looks like at least from quick google it took 18 million dollars to do the restoration um and yes since he's a you know casino billionaire i guess that's trump change to him um and yeah, and then, you know, I guess it yeah, and you sort of the piece thinking about, well, like, I guess eventually all, everything is going to decay <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> including us, of course. And, um, and yeah, these, um, you know, uh, probably they weren't constructed thinking the paintings weren't made thinking these will last for a thousand years or it was impossible to make it last that way. So. I don't know. Yeah, gonna, and I think they're they're gonna, nice. Whereas the NFT, conceivably, <laughs> the NFT will last forever or something. I don't know.
1: <laughs> NFT forever. Do
0: you have, any have... Thought, do you have any thoughts on NFTs as someone who as a... Yeah, I
1: mean, I basically think that NFTs... I think NFTs have actually something much more in common with, like, the signed baseball than, like, Picasso in that mm-hmm. they just, like, a way of differentiating some thing it's just a way of like translating, making ownership like legible somehow online that people have gotten really excited about. And it seems like one of the first times that people have been people being meaning like people in the crypto world, people in the art world have been, have managed to like translate the collector's impulse into the digital space, which I think is interesting and kind of cool in various ways. Like it, it enables artists some artists to make some money on it, but it fundamentally just like really returns to this idea of like ownership and possession as like what makes art, like what makes the sort of art world go round and what, like just to codify that like further bums me out a little bit. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I guess I'm a little down on NFTs on the whole in that I just think, it's nothing, it's nothing really new. It's just like a new way of talking about owning something mm-hmm. and, and a way of actually sort of drawing like boundaries around something that for some reason, there are other ways you could do this. And for some reason, NFTs are the way that has really like caught on in the art world of just like making, yeah, just making possession make sense to people on the internet possession of a, a digital object. Um, I do think there's some interesting like work that's come out of it. So I'm like not, down on that. I'm not down on, like, the. I like net art, and I, like, think digital art is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, yeah, this idea of ownership being so central to our experience of art, obviously, is a bit of a bummer.
0: Right. You know, thinking about the baseball stuff more so just, so with these baseballs that I had in a box in a basement for years, I decided to finally... Uh, this past year, take them to like be appraised and see if someone wanted to buy them. And so, um, when I was a kid, some of them I would go to like conventions and stuff and get the players signed, and other ones were like given to me as birthday presents by relatives or something like that because I was so into it. And so I had two signed Mickey Mantles and I brought it into this place on 57th Street and that does collectibles. And the guy looked at them and he was like, this one looks good. The other one doesn't look so good. Um, and, yeah. and then they sent them off to, there's like two, basically two appraisal companies and they offer their judgment on whether it's real or fake. And so they sent both, you know, uh, the, the, 50 or so ball, or maybe uh, there were like 50 total. There some of them weren't even worth the money to pay for the authentication yeah, yeah. anyway. So one of the mantles was real. One of them was fake, according to the experts who we trust. And, um and so i kept the fake one and i kept i have it on my shelf and so um i know not i mean okay this guy claims it's fake and the yeah the experts say it's fake um so so i i of course had the thought well i can sell this to someone saying i think it's real <laughs> because yeah. or that i have no idea where it came from or something and i probably get some some money for it because it looks like a biggie handle signature yeah. and also maybe and maybe it actually is it's a you know authentication is an art, not a science. And, right. um, and so it's just the judgment of how they went. And then when I was showing, so, um, when I was showing the balls to the guy at the store, you know, so he's not the like super expert, the, but the medium expert, uh, there was a Bernie Williams one, a player for the Yankees in yeah, the nineties. Yeah. And he said, this, this one does look good. I said, actually, no, I actually know that one was signed in person because I remember um, <laughs> <laughs> because the, the Yankees used to have this event called fan fest where you could like wait in line and have the players sign your stuff. So the, there was some that were from that era and so Bernie Williams was real the but the expert said fake um and so you really saw
1: the holes in the authentication (laughs) process
0: yes and so um yeah so that's not directly related but it is sort of like it you know there's you know what if the I guess this is getting back to like the mechanical reproduction stuff but like you know what if the guy had really the guy who took the painting had actually taken it because he wanted to study it for years and uh and replicate it and this that was sort of the plot of uh goldfinch wasn't it that yeah there's make a copy um government mm-hmm. years and so yeah so i don't know i don't know but yes yeah.
1: <laughs> well <laughs> speaking of i'm working on this like project sort of where i'm really interested in collections just in general and like collectors and collecting um but speaking of baseball like there are all these artifacts from the 90s like i guess pokemon cards are the big ones right now they're like having these like speculative bubbles of value i think like somewhat driven like related to nfts but like collectibles right now are huge yes and pokemon cards have gotten so valuable that they had to stop selling them at Target because people were getting into physical altercations over Pokemon cards. Yes. And I just think it's this really create. We're in this really crazy period. I think of seeing like these waves of nostalgia for like really, I don't want to say, I don't know if it's junk, but like not, not objects that are like, they're like commercial objects. They're like associated with a brand. Mm-hmm. I think in the past, in like mid-century, like collector's items, like stamps were a little more like, well, I don't know. Maybe that's the brand of the post office. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know that they were more pure, but it's weird to see these like, like I think beanie babies are kind of starting to have their renaissance. These things that were just like really sold to kids in the early nineties are right. now having this whole renaissance where they're like, worth, like, a lot more than they were ever worth
0: then. Yeah, um, I, so I know a little bit about this um, just for sim- similar reasons, because, uh, I yeah, I was, maybe you should interview me, because I I was, a, like, a c- collecting kid. I was, like, cl- collecting everything when I was a kid. And uh, but I, was, I was too young for, or I was too old for Pokemon cards, but I had a ton of baseball cards and other such things, and uh, Marvel Comics and Marvel cards. And so the, the company that authenticates the Pokemon card and then like puts in a slab of plastic that says this is a grade 10.0 perfect thing and then the Charizard card is worth $250,000. That's the same company, I think. Or at least there's there's too mm. many companies that do a bunch of these different authentication things that did the, does the baseballs. Um, And so, yeah, so it's, it's once again, we're trusting the experts. I guess it's probably easier to say that this is a fake Charizard than to say this is a fake Mickey Mantle because there's more right. material to analyze it and, and stuff um, and not just someone who... Figured out how to mimic Mickey Mantle's signature, <laughs> um, but yeah, it is strange. But you know, the like the reason like Mickey Mantle's uh, rookie card is valuable is both that he was a great player and ninety nine point nine percent of mothers threw out their son's baseball cards when they left for college or whatever. Or my dad, I remember told me that they used to you know put it in the spokes of their uh, bikes- bicycle wheels and it made a clattering sound, and that's what they do with their <laughs> with their ball cards. Or people just oh. you know like traded them and they became. You know, they were all messed up. Right. So finding a mint one, um, was different or, you know, it was very difficult. And then when I was a kid in the nineties and was really into baseball and baseball cards, um, my parents thought that these would someday pay for my college education right. because this was this huge collecting thing, but there were 10 million other sets of parents That's who also thought that. And so it turns out that they were totally worthless. And then when my That's mom sold her house five years ago, there were 80 boxes of baseball cards in the attic (laughs) and I didn't know what to do with them. And I thought, I didn't even think it was worth it to like go through them one by one. It would just take too much time. And, um, so what ended up happening is that there was a, uh, sort of like a a dump recycling day down at the dump. And I just, I just brought them to be recycled thinking, you know, I don't know what what else to do with these things. Uh, no one, they're, they're worthless essentially. Um, and the guy who was, um, you know pointing telling people where to put their recyclables was like oh are those baseball cards and i said yeah and he's like oh my my son or my daughter likes them and and i was like oh they're you know they're yours and he was like oh cool and i was like i have like 75 more in the car Uh, so i so it may be over i don't know if he actually took all of them or something but at least some of them hopefully delighted another (laughs) child
1: second life
0: Yeah. so that i was happy about that but um yeah
1: I heard, I, the other thing I heard, and I don't know if this is true, is that they like made more baseball cards, like they, the, the yes. in our generation, like baseball cards became worthless because they like made too many of them, and so they diluted that like rarity. This factor.
0: is what the guy, yeah, this is what the guy at the store told me, which I never heard before. So the, the most viable card when I was a kid was Ken Griffey Jr.'s rookie card for up, from upper deck, which was sort mm-hmm. of like the premium baseball card. He said they would just, so at first, and he, so I think it was 88 or 89, he was like, Gonna be the next great, you, you know, he was gonna be the next Mickey Mantle and everyone was crazy about him. And so, so they started just, Upper Deck apparently started running off entire sheets of just, um, That's just Ken, Ken Griffey instead of doing like one out of 800 yeah. being Ken Griffey. And so the, it, it flooded the market and the, uh, Ken Griffey card, which is like the Holy Grail. And I, I didn't have one. I wanted one desperately really when I was a kid. Um, <laughs> I never got it. The, the Holy Grail, I guess, you know, they printed 50 million of them or something. And, <laughs>
1: Yeah, but it is interesting in order to maintain that value. I feel like the comp, it's a really hard thing to, to, like a a difficult line to walk as a company between sustaining the interest of millions of people. So having enough that you can like flood the market, but, but also few enough that they maintain this kind of like scarcity rarity thing, which is the whole point. And also the whole point of like NFTs and to some extent also art, though that maybe has more of an aesthetic or, you know, physical canvases like Mm -hmm. just like that that rarity element
0: of things yeah and and, on the pokemon cards and magic the gathering which is sort of the same idea behind it have become i guess much more valuable because 98 percent of kids like played the game version of them and were like carrying them in their back pocket or something so they eventually got basically destroyed and the weirdo kid who put his charizard in the box and never touched (laughs) it again that one is worth (laughs) $250,000, Two hundred fifty thousand dollars. At least some <laughs> someone thinks it is. Um, but yeah, I think yeah, it's a fascinating subject. And that whole era of that late eighties, early nineties collectible boom about yeah, that stuff. Man. I don't know. Do you follow David Roth on Twitter? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He has a, this sort of running thing of like, let's look at some guys and just like, oh, op- like because you can buy an old baseball card pack, you know, from like nineteen eighty seven for five bucks or something, and then open mm-hmm. up and look at it. And um, yeah, it's it's like a transported to a different world um
1: what else did you what else did you collect besides baseball so my, my first
0: great passion was transformer toys and mm-hmm. um i was really into those and those actually have inflated value because once again the most of them were played with by ch- children right. and mm-hmm. they like smashed them against each other so so action figures and so the stuff i mean maybe the the essential thing is the stuff that uh contemporarily people think is not is just total commonplace not trash but like did the switch child and let them have fun with it that could appreciate in value <laughs> 30 years from now whereas the stuff where it's like oh this is you know this is gonna be super precious someday and so we can just like look at it in the package if, if everyone thinks that then there's no scarcity to it right. and so like my brother was really into beanie babies and had a bunch of them he did take them out or he would play with them because he was a little kid but i think he it, it, there was some idea in the air that these would be valuable someday, but I think yeah. the market fell out because of overproduction and everyone oh, yeah. thought they might be valuable someday. Yeah, so yeah. Transformers, I can just basically into anything. I have this another thing that I, this one I'm not quite sure how to get rid of. I used, they they still sell them, but these uh, magnets of each state that you could get at like rest oh, stops. Yeah. Um, and we would always get them when I would, we would go down to visit my grandmother in Baltimore. And so I get like, you know, each time we would stop at a rest stop, my parents would buy me a 99 cent uh state magnet and then somehow we found that there was a official um uh piece of metal that had the u.s map on it for so for each one so you could put each one in its proper place i have this in my apartment currently i have no idea what to do with it it seems too valuable to just throw it away again yeah, no, you I, I, throw I, it
1: away that's the thing i mean that's the thing with something like the collection that like you've labored to create like you find
0: so yeah a couple of the states fell uh new england I'm sorry to tell you as a New Englander, oh, yeah. uh, some of the New England states because they were near the qu- upper corner or something got knocked off and are gone. Mm-hmm. But I think I have 47 of the other 50. <laughs> yes. And it's, yeah, I don't know quite what to do with it. Um, if any, if anyone's listening wants, you know, the metal board and the uh, 47 <laughs> or 50 <laughs> <laughs> magnets, you know, my DMs are open if you want to make an offer. Um, yeah. yeah, it's another thing where I feel like some, someone out there appreciates this i don't know who or even yeah putting on ebay I don't even you know if that's worth it and shipping and everything so i don't know
1: yeah when i was uh, we had like um i guess it, did they just introduce like this the like, quarters with the states on them that was, like, the when I was a kid so i had one of those like maps and like i would look for the like quarters and like put them in right. the, in the map um that one i think i mean that one's an interest it's a little bit I feel like there's sort of two genres of this. And one is, like, it's something that you can't find. And then the other is it's, like, something you buy, like, in in succession. Like, you buy the Beanie Babies. And the quarters, it was, like, you had to really, like, be on the lookout. And you, it was very frustrating because there were, like, more of some quarters than others. Like, I don't think I ever really got very far with my state quarter map.
0: Right. I remember when that happened. So, I think it started in 2000. Maybe I'm wrong. It was started earlier. But I remember when it started, I was, like, still a collectible... Person and was like, "Oh, it'd be cool to do this," but they were only releasing four or five a year, and I was like, "So they weren't going to finish for ten years?" Or yeah, uh,
1: oh yeah, they were releasing them all at the same time. That was the yeah, I mean,
0: it was yeah. they were portioning yeah. them out in the order that each state became you know ratified the constitution or whatever. <laughs> so I was thinking like, "Wow, like I'll be like you know thirty two by the time this ends. I probably won't want this shit anymore." But then and then at some point I, I was like. Maybe I would. You know, maybe I should have just stuck <laughs> with it. And they're still doing it because it's now like national parks or historic mm-hmm. sites or something. So I guess it's popular enough that it's worth it to them to, um, yeah. to do that. I guess, but there is something different between, I guess, something that the government puts out, like a stamp or a coin, versus yeah. a more commercial product or something. Right. Um, and
1: there are also different kinds of, like, there are collections that you can complete and collections you cannot complete, which I also think is, it. Yeah. like, you can get all 50, states on the map or in the quarters. And then there are some that you could just continue to buy. Uh, my, what I collected when I was a kid, what, uh, stuffed koala bears and <laughs> I had 62 of them and I wow. still have them <laughs> or I have them in storage, in uh-huh. my parents storage. Uh, and so I need, I, but it's, you could just keep doing that forever, which I think is a very different kind of collector's quest because it's more about how do you discern which particular ones you want from this mm-hmm. infinite set rather than like completing a specific set
0: as a task. Right. That's interesting. Do you, st- if you see a stuffed koala bear at the store, do you still get it or? Uh... No,
1: no, no. I, I stopped probably like kind of late, like probably like sixth grade or something. So mm-hmm. I don't know, late enough that it was like, like, it was just, it was something where I like, asked for like every birthday like every Christmas like from my 16 aunts and uncle like I just was always getting stuffed koalas and so I have them still I can't like part with them I mean it's it's such an emotional relationship with these things because you just accumulate them and you can't I I wouldn't want to get but I also it makes me sad that they exist but they don't like have a home and aren't loved so I think it's Mm -hmm. probably the thing to do will be to like give them away to some child who wants maybe not 62 stuff, but then you separate <laughs> them. I don't know. It's very, it's very tangled emotionally. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. Stuffed animals definitely occupy a special place of, especially if you were like, you know, hugging them as you fall asleep yeah. yeah. or something. Um Yeah. It is, you know, the things that I've, as I've grown older, the things for my childhood where I'm like, you know, either, you know, give this to Goodwill or just throw it away. Like the baseball cards versus the things where like, this is, this does have some meaning to me um, is interesting to think about. And, you know, what, um, what, you know, what are the precious objects versus the things that you're fine passing, like, passing along or just getting rid of entirely. Um, why don't we talk about maybe one more piece? Yes. Yes. <laughs> and let's talk about the subway piece. Cause that, that, that's fun. Okay. And people should check that out because the way they put it together on the website is, is really fun. So uh, you wrote you wrote a piece. It's another thing where it's like, how did you decide that this was worth investigating because it does seem like such a sort of minor, minor note, not no pun intended. And it's the sounds that subway subway cars make when the doors are closing around the world. Uh The hidden melodies of subways around the world is, is the headline for the Times.
1: Yeah. So this is one of those weird ones. Um It actually originally came to be, I had wanted to do something about like subway, like different subways visually kind of around the world. Like, I, and I, I was working with this photo editor and this graphics editor. We were just, we were like tossing around different ideas. And then my co-writer uh, Denise had actually s- separately kind of compiled this like um, almost like rhythmic notation of like, of different subway chimes. And so we sort of came together, basically we just came together on this piece and I was interested in, I was kind of interested in like what, makes a subway sound like what is a subway sound why do they exist Mm -hmm. what what makes it distinct and also like there are these category of people who are like really obsessed with them and and like compile them and so they're sort of collectors in their own way of like subway sounds um and so I kind of dove into the, the world of trains and like people who love trains um is a world of like much obsession. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Thing. No. I mean,
0: yeah. Train obsessives are among the most obsessive <laughs> of obsessed. obsessors.
1: Um. So then I, yeah, just kind of dove into this really weird world and tapped. It was. It's one of those pieces that actually, as a reporting project, is like kind of challenging because you like call up the like MTA and you're like, how did we get a subway sound? And like, nobody (laughs) can come up with an answer. Uh And so then you have to like, they have to call a guy. I was to call a guy. And eventually you talk to somebody who's like retired. And this guy actually is in the story of Bruce Alexander, who retired in like 1980, who was involved in the original production of the ding dong sound in New York. Uh
0: Um,
1: And yeah, so it was, it was doing that for like a variety of subway systems around the world. And then, Kind of just like trying to think about, uh, yeah, what makes what makes a subway sound, and, and what is this sort of like significance of this kind of banal but very distinct part of the sonic landscape of your
0: life? Yeah, and 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 if you look at the piece online, the you can press you know a play button and various sounds will will be played and illustrated in a um, a nice way and. Yeah, it's it's interesting, and it's so. What and one little note again, <laughs> one intended that struck me was that someone says that their least favorite um one, it, least favorite sound from a train or subway in the world is the New Jersey Transit one. And I grew up in New Jersey, and I, I and I was like, well, I don't, I can't even remember what it is, but that's probably the sound I've heard the most. And then there's a link, and you hear like a, from a YouTube compilation, and as soon as I heard, I was like, oh yeah, that is awful, and why is <laughs> why is that so bad? And yeah. does that fit into like other – things that people hate about New Jersey um <laughs> and why haven't they ever changed it who knows um but yeah it was funny that I couldn't it's probably as it much the one I've heard more than any other one uh And over time, but but couldn't think of it immediately. But then once it struck me, I was like, (laughs) oh,
1: yes, things that you don't notice. And then when you start thinking about it, like when I was working on this piece, I heard it all the time and like was really was very focused on it. But they're also I mean, I think there are these real markers of place, too, especially if you hear the announcements with them, like when you're traveling to a foreign city or even a city in your own country. But you just like, you kind of hear these different voices saying the announcements and they're really like, it's evocative to hear, I think the Paris Metro announcement. You can like imagine yourself in Paris. There's a guy in this story who, um, is a train enthusiast who talks about like when he hears the St. Petersburg chimes and the announcements, he like imagines himself in a Dostoevsky novel, which I really liked. Cause I do think they're, I think in your own, I think that you notice the least in your own environment, maybe if you've been like commuting and hearing them all the time. And then when you get somewhere else, they can really, um, bring it out. I think some of the most beautiful ones are in Canada. Interestingly, there's like they have, they have three note chimes in Montreal and in Vancouver um and there is vancouver, you know,
0: is vancouver the one that sounds similar to the aaron copeland one that's, or what montreal, one that? that's montreal. Oh, montreal okay yeah that one is very pleasant and um uh, <laughs> yeah it is yeah and why i guess and it's and it is the sort of thing that maybe once it's put into place it's hard to dislodge if it's like programmed into every car or something so it's sort of like you're stuck with it and maybe that's why they never made a more pleasant one for New Jersey transit because it would cost $50 million to yeah. do the reprogramming or whatever.
1: Yeah. I mean, the other thing that somebody says in the story is like, there's a balance you want to strike between being pleasant. Like ultimately the point of them is to get people to get out of the way of doors closing, which is like kind of important to remember. And there are all these different things that go into that. Like at one point when they were doing the New York one, they made it too long. And so people were like, like using that time to like run out of the subway there was too much of a delay between the chime and the doors closing and so more people were actually getting hurt and so they had to like reduce the delay time and then there's also I think some of them are intentionally very like the London one that is not a pleasant sound like it really is meant to be getting your attention mm-hmm. um so there's kind of an interesting I think there are different philosophies
0: about what what <laughs> the chime. yeah and if if you don't you want it to be loud enough to like maybe wake someone up if they've nodded off or something or yeah you, yeah it has to be noticeable uh that it's happening and um yeah so yeah I encourage people to check out this piece and it's another one where you've like identified something <laughs> in the culture that probably you know Someone hasn't thought intensely about before. <laughs> um, what is there a precursor? I mean, yeah, when you have something like this, you look for a precursor, you know, like a talk of the town piece from 1997 about this kind of thing. Or
1: I, there was not a lot written about this. Really, just these YouTube compilations were the precursors. I mean, they, they really actually made it possible to do the piece because otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to travel. To there was there was actually like a big discussion about how we were going to like get the different sounds because they were like, do we need to send like the Times correspondent in wherever to go like, of right. course, the <laughs> just,
0: is, you know,
1: yeah, it seemed like perhaps not the best. <laughs> time. Um, so we just asked the YouTubers for permission. Um, but yeah. So something like that. I mean, this is, I think, I think I'm sometimes like my pieces come, I'm like, this is something weird that I noticed. And like, is there anything more to this? And sometimes there is, and sometimes there isn't. And in this case, there ended up being a lot more to it than I, than I
0: expected. Yeah. Why don't we, uh, that makes you think that's a natural segue to another one. And maybe we'll close out with this one, which is sure. the the piece on the lost pet, lost pet signs. Lost pet signs. And yes. that was in art news, right?
1: It was, yeah, Art America. Um, yeah.
0: So warm- another, another thing that is mostly, uh, you know, a, a banal commonplace of, of, you know, street life or something. And uh, how did you decide to? I have always been really- close. Like,
1: really struck by lost pet signs um I just I I, whenever I'm walking around somewhere I like really notice them and pay attention to them and I think they're just like these labors of love like for a pet um often they're kind of put together in this like haphazard way but people will be like really trying to describe their cat in a specific way I think there's one that I like refer to in the piece where it's this one, this these were around Cambridge, Massachusetts, for like months in the beginning of the year. And it was like this cat is very long. And they're just like all these adjectives where you're just like trying to communicate like this animal that you love to some potential stranger who might be helpful to you. And so I think like seeing that act of care um and it is really interesting. And then the other part of it that I think is maybe like most interesting in some ways is like the, the way that they kind of speak to a neighborhood in this public way in a way that maybe I often feel somewhat like disconnected from my neighborhood or I have, I've also like moved around a lot in recent years. And so just this idea of a neighborhood that's kind of like as a positive force rather than a negative one, because neighborhoods are also whack, but like kind of coming together around a common cause and like pets are such a feature of neighborhoods. Like, you know, you might know your neighborhood's dogs, even if you don't know their names. And so like, just that kind of compelling sense of like people in the neighborhood who are helping you find a pet. And many lost pets are found, especially um, quickly. So there is a happy, happy ending potentially to the story, especially lost dogs are often found. Mm
0: -hmm. Right. But sometimes the part of what you talked about was also that it's sort of like you, you, you get the beginning of the story, but you don't get the end because maybe, you know, if, if people get their dog back, you don't necessarily go back around and, and tear down the posters, um, yeah. or, or certainly not. You, I assume, no one ever posts a poster saying "We found him." Like, don't no, worry. No, they do. That's actually oh, that's good. like <laughs> my favorite.
1: You see those, and those are the best. Those are like the happy ones. I've actually seen them more and more. I, I think especially maybe the British are just like very polite. But when I lived in London, which is where I lived before here, you would often see like, and there was actually a, a much more. um uh, There's a big outdoor cat community in my neighborhood, so there were like a lot of cats that would sort of disappear for a while and come back, and people would put up signs. But then they would put up these signs that would be like "Kylos found," like "Thank you for your help." And it was okay, well, that's of-
0: lovely, and yeah, that's that's lovely. the sort of like you know, un you know, pure good news type yes. of thing that <laughs> you <get laughs> encounter not so often. Um, yes.
1: So that's the pure good news. Most, most of the time you don't get to see that ending. So I think when you do, that's when you see the real, that's the real joy of the, the found pet sign. Um, but I think both of them are kind of in this like dialogue with this imagined neighborhood that maybe you don't really know very well, but it, you imagine is sort of in people making a sign, imagine is invested in their, in their pets. And that may actually be invested in their pets. So I feel invested in their pets.
0: Yeah. And, and yeah, ones that in my neighborhood, if I see one, a new one, I usually take a, a photo of it in case I do see the cat. And there was at least one time where I thought I saw – I took a photo of one. It was, like, black cat or something, and then I I thought mm-hmm. I maybe saw it in the neighborhood and then looked more closely at, at it as I was walking around with my phone, and it was not, nice. uh, not the same one. But, um, but yeah, it, and, it yeah, and yeah they do – I mean, they say that they it does often work, aside from, like, calling your – if your pet goes missing, call your local shelter and post online and – yeah, when I used to live in Rochester, there was a Facebook group called like Rochester Spotters or something, mm-hmm. where people would post, post their lost animals, and so that was the Facebook version of seeing it. But the, because you can easily update a Facebook post, it would off you'd often see it, and then it would say like we found them or something. So that was Great. that was nice also. Um But yeah, and sort of the this also reminds me uh, early in lockdown. You know, I, I move I live in Jersey City now, and I moved there shortly before lockdown started, and then there was a very friendly there's a lot of street cats in my neighborhood also and it's unclear most of them i think people feed them but they're, they don't ever go inside people's houses and there was a very friendly cat that always hung out at the same place and when i was taking my you know long walks during early pandemic around the neighborhood um you know he would just come right up and accept scratches and pets and stuff and um and he just it was like okay so someone is taking care of this guy he's so friendly and then uh Uh, You know, I wouldn't always see him in this place. So he went around a little bit. He would usually hang out at one house, and then, um, and then I stopped seeing him. So I guess there was a sort of possible Irish goodbye of Um, uh, he he disappeared. I haven't seen him since. So yeah, uh, maybe. So it's either like a very good story, someone decided finally to take him in, or Mm -hmm. it's a sad story of something bad happened to him, and he. he, Yeah. Maybe he's no longer with us at all. Or maybe he he moved on to some other neighborhood. found a new spot. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, that's weird. That's like what's weird about kind of loose neighborhood relations or like loose relationships in general, though I think now like often we sort of have connection. Like we can find people. You don't really hear about people like disappearing from the face of the earth that often anymore. It does happen. But it's I think it's just... But within your neighborhood, you might like get used to seeing someone and then never see them again and not really know... It's just it's an odd kind of relationship. Um, Yeah. And one that can be characterized by something like an Irish
0: goodbye, a a, a sudden and
1: absolute departure.
0: Yes. And I did think about knocking on the door of this like duplex and asking like, at some point, you know, was there do you remember Irish cat used to hang out around here? But but I never I never did that. And um, because I thought the person who lived there or wouldn't know what I was talking about or something. But yeah. yeah. And then, the, yeah, the, I mean, this, well, I, wh- why don't we, so the cats and the dogs sometimes are found and that's good. So and, and it's, not a, it's not a true Irish goodbye because they, they return once again. <laughs> so, so that's a good place. Maybe we should end it there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> go. yeah, and
1: on the found, and on the found cats and dogs.
0: Yeah. Um, okay. Well, this has been really fun. Thanks for, thanks for coming on. So if people, yeah people should follow you in various places and, and uh, can you tell, tell our viewers and listeners how they can do so?
1: Oh yes. You can follow me on Twitter. It's my name at Sophie Hegney, H-A-I-G-N-E-Y. And that's the main way you can follow me and you can look at my website, <laughs> which is sophiehegney.com.
0: Uh, yes. And you're, you are a, a, a good person to follow on Twitter in general, I think. Um oh, thank you. So yeah, uh, people should do that and, or they can follow me on Twitter or ACW um, and uh, they can rate a review. They can smash that like button. Um, yes. They can do whatever they want. Um, <laughs> they can leave the party without saying goodbye. Um, exactly. <laughs> so, that's so, so, yeah, Thanks so much for, for doing this. Uh, it's been a delightful conversation and yeah, thank um, thanks to all welcome. of our viewers and listeners and we'll see you next time. Okay. Bye.